0: You see the
1: style Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast, I'm James, this is Pete. Hello everyone. This is episode 176 and really fun show coming up. We've got uh, Senator James Patterson, Liberal Senator for Victoria, on the show once again. Huge week of news in regards to Hong Kong, in regards to extradition treaties and Australia's relationship with China. Big win for the Wolverines, which we've been talking about on the show for a little bit. And, you know, it's so... Easy to get jaded at the world of politics, especially the last couple of months. But when stories come around like Australia embracing Hong Kong as fleeing persecution, you're like, oh, mm. this is why things can be good sometimes. It's really important.
0: Yeah, no, it was good. And, you know, we like to bag the government as much as anyone, but for credit where it's due. I think we fought a bit of an oversight from us, James. We forgot to ask how if you know the the qualification uh, requirements have changed and we can actually join the wolverines so i guess we'll just do that next time we do have james on fairly regularly but really great interview give it a listen
1: i'm going uh, kind of like a reverse psychology thing where if you stop asking about it you're like oh you know does he still want to be a member mm. of the wolverines and it's, you know you just don't want to come off too keen which i feel mm. like came off last time so i'm playing it a bit okay. more cool this time that's good uh, all right. Uh, we also got uh, Victoria's back in lockdown. All the stuff that that means for Australia. We've got the letter on cancel culture. We've got heroes and villains. Pete's not fine. Comes back from a hiatus because, you know, when the the government locks people down, the fines start coming. And I reckon, mm, I reckon yeah. this will be a golden era for Pete's not fine because I'm not exactly seeing the same level of uh, obedience to a lockdown as the first time around. So I reckon there will be a few more fines handed out. Uh, and before we start the show, just big old thank you to all the people from the Friedman Conference who joined us for a panel on Saturday. Uh, really fun discussion, just very cool hanging out with podcast listeners and IPA members and basically just talk back radio for an hour or so. I really enjoyed myself. I think Pete enjoyed himself a lot too, so thanks to all the people that came out. I enjoyed
0: it up until they made me prove that I was wearing pants. I felt like that was a bit over the top, but uh, no, it was great. And a big yeah. congratulations to everyone involved with organising it because it went for 24 hours and some people stayed up the whole time. So, Yeah, Kirstie
1: O'Sullivan, that. IPA staff member, shout out to her. Uh, all right, Pete, let's talk about Victoria back in lockdown and what that means for the country. And I'll start it off with this. Why would you go to South Australia? That was a meme. I mean, the years-long jokes about how Melbourne's nightlife is better than Sydney that's all gone too We are the laughing stock Let's talk about it Yeah, I hadn't I'd sort of been it's, it's amazing what you think about You know, when
0: there's This huge thing going on I was like You know, the, the, the chance We're going to cop at the A-League Are just going to be withering uh, As a result of stuff like this But uh, it does seem like That's ages what ago. rattles
1: Peter Gregory More than anything else If there's a yeah. particularly good chant At a soccer match against him That yeah. will rattle him for two weeks solid I
0: reckon those. No, I won't say that. But um, I, I, I was about to just, I was about to just vilify half our audience. But um, no, uh, yeah, no stuff like that. It, it, it is the small things. It seems like ages ago that this happened, but it was actually before. It was less than a week ago because we did it was after our last show. So uh, amazing how long a week can seem. But obviously, as we all know, Victoria is now in full lockdown once again. Uh, we've been we, we we talked through the last episode about how this is the fault of the Andrews government. Uh, and what, so I won't you know, bore you with all that again. What I would say was that the language around what was said, I did not rate at all. Effectively, Andrews basically blamed the people of Victoria. He said, we all know someone who's breaking the rules. Uh, and he made statements like that. If, to my, In my mind, he didn't take responsibility for all the mistakes he's made for the fact that we had more onerous restrictions than everyone else. And it seemed not to have worked. The fact that there was a complete hypocrisy over the protests, uh, quarantine Hotel quarantine security, obviously, as we all know, did not work that well, and the failure—yeah, like to literally actually-
1: turning away the Australian Defence Force from hotel quarantine so they could use private security firms—and then that seems mm. to be where the second breakouts come from. But, but no, it was yeah. our complacency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's oh, I- our fault that those private security firms didn't uh, adhere to health rules enough. Yeah.
0: Oh it's it's unbelievable the language that was used and as James Patterson goes says in uh, the the interview we have with him you know the whole thing is because of the hotel quarantine stuff so realistically James I realize that I've never hated a politician more <laughs> like we always bag politicians but fortunately in this country they don't have that much of an influence over your life like they increasingly do but obviously at the moment my whole life has changed because of this and obviously there's people out there that are you know are sick and dying and have their businesses stuffed up and, and all that i'm just saying from my personal point of view this is the most a politician has ever had an influence on my life
1: and i don't care for it james Yes, and then talking from a national point of view, I mean, we've now seen a few Victorian travellers make their way to New South Wales and they're infected and there's a cluster happening in Sydney and I think that that Sydney cluster is now starting to affect Queensland as well, so eventually everyone's going to be copying it. And not only from the health side, but also an economic side because last week, just when... what is going to happen to Victoria's economy through this lockdown the way that our federation is set up, other states are eventually going to have to bail out Victoria for all of our mistakes. So if you're sitting there in your other states and territories laughing at us, you should be, because you've done well and we haven't. But just know that eventually the bill will be passed on to you because of how the constitution is set up, which is so not fair. Uh, Don't get me started talking about competitive federalism, but this is the kind of thing that... Really just, it it can bankrupt a nation on just this one small, uh, not not even small, but like this one little cluster in Melbourne can eventually lead to the economic decisions of bankrupt a nation.
0: That's exactly right. And I've got a stat for you, James. Goldman Sachs Chief Economist Andrew Boak, no relation that I'm aware of, uh, estimated that lockdown in Victoria would slash about 1.5% from Australia's GDP in the September quarter. Uh, so there you go. No, you're exactly yep. right there. What I would I, say is the difference in approach
1: that the New, James is just disrobing in front of me. Yeah, it's not that just, kind of podcast, mate. Um, <laughs> I'm but, not feeling the jumper; it was making me constricted, and I think I might have hurt my shoulder doing that. So let's let's continue on. The sign of age. I do that sometimes these days when I take my jumper off.
0: Anyway, New South Wales cabinet. Oh, so New South Wales is going on a bit of a different approach from the Australia from the Victoria at the moment. It might change. Excuse me. On Monday, they decided to cut uh, from 20 to 10 the number of patrons that are allowed uh, at pubs and strengthen flying squads to enforce COVID-19 social distancing laws. But senior ministers remain committed to keeping the New South Wales economy open at this stage, uh, as businesses warn they can't, they can't afford a repeat of a hard lockdown. So uh, they, they said that the state's hospital system is equipped to handle a sharp rise in cases. And a lockdown would be an absolute last resort. So it's interesting the difference if it's in approaches between the two governments. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Once again, you know, New South Wales had lower, uh, less re- onerous restrictions than Victoria um, the whole way through. So once again, this will provide a comparison to, for us to, to make claims about.
1: Yeah, it's good to see New South Wales going back to the original premise of flatten the curve, which is just make sure that Australia's hospitals don't become overcrowded with coronavirus patients. And because New South Wales hospitals are not, and it would take something very drastic for them to become overcrowded. Mm. It's good to know that they're returning to the original premise. Like everyone was happy to lock down just to make sure that the hospitals were stocked up enough on ventilators, etc. But I mean, you can't eradicate the virus. Victoria tried, look what happens. And, and this whole idea of just we can lock down until the cure comes. What happens if the cure is years away or or just doesn't come?
0: Yeah, and that slipped in without anyone sort of saying we've made a change of direction here. Like it was never said, okay, we were going to go for flatten the curve, but now it's eradication. Uh, it just sort of slipped in without people realising it and that's a completely different ball game. On that vaccine though, piece of good news, drug maker CSL will produce millions of do- doses of Australia's Vaccine, uh, and it will start being. T- it started. It has started being tested. So they think it might be ready by the start of next year, potentially. Or
1: yeah. and let me make sure. And if right. that works, you know, if if, if it turns out that the stuff actually does work as well. So like a lot of, well, a long ways to go. Good to know that it's happening, but long way. Yeah. To
0: go a lot of ifs and buts. It's not yeah. going to definitely really be next year, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, I think uh,
1: we've, we're we now just going over stuff we've been saying on the show for about two months straight. So I'm going to move topics to something we haven't talked about at all, which is the cancel Culture Letter last week from, uh, well, it was published in Harper's Magazine. It was a bunch of society's elite intellectuals signed an open letter criticizing cancel culture. They all put their names to it and they just wanted a return to where ideas can be freely discussed without you know employers coming uh, you know people sending something that was written to the employer and hoping they got fired uh they referenced one case where someone just uh, uh quoted the uh abstract of an article on twitter and then got fired for it so i don't think i'm as sold on this letter as you are so why don't you tell me why you think the letter is good and then i'll back up why i think it's not as good
0: Okay, well, yeah, well, I'm not 100% like this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened, but I do think it's obviously a step in the right direction. So it's, it's, it's anti-cancel culture, as we all know. I would say the thing that's significant about it is that all the, all, from what I can tell, most of the academics and people that have signed it are actually lefties. So people like Noam Chomsky, J.K. Rowling, Selman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood. Well, you know, J.K. All- Rowling
1: has been cancelled, so
0: I don't know if the left
1: will have her anymore.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, but she would probably describe herself as left wing. Yeah. So so part of me is a little bit like, it's a bit like Michael Schellenberger the other day when he was talking about, you know, climate change is exaggerated or well, the threat of climate change is exaggerated. It's like, yeah, kind of been saying this for years, mate. Good on you, but, you know, have been saying it for years. Um, so there's a bit of that. Uh, and there was just some random crap in there, like in the letter that I read um the forces of a liberalism are gaining strength throughout the world and have a powerful ally in Donald Trump, who represents a real threat to democracy. So there's just one or two points like that that was like, hang on, what? But in general, I think it's a good thing. And I think it's clearly positive that people who are left-wing are waking up to this because, you know, realistically, you need a broad coalition of people supporting this to get, uh, to get things to happen. So it's good that the people of the left are also realising this. And the crucial point for me is these guys will have to come up against their idea of system, systemic, like the West is nothing but systemic oppression. And I love freedom of, of expression. Like those two things can't coexist at the same time. Because if you believe that everything is, you know, if the West is completely systemically oppressive to different groups, then... You can't really have freedom of expression because everyone's coming into it at different levels of, of um, what's the word? I don't even know. Utility, let's say. So, so it will start to eat away at the idea that there is nothing but oppression in the West. Um,
1: so that's why I think it's a good thing. What what don't you like about it, James? I just think open letters from society's elite are just naturally cringe. Just complete uh, cringe like this. Like, I, and you know, there's some pretty good people in there. You pointed out uh, someone Rushdie. There's also Martin Amis and Jonathan Haidt, who I really like, but. Yeah, I want to re-establish the quote that you read out, right? Because what I think this letter... This letter talks about cancel culture, but it's not exactly putting the finger uh, at the people that are actually doing it, right? Sorry... The only person that gets mentioned in the letter is Donald Trump as a <laughs> uh, force of a liberalism around the world of gaining strength. They have a powerful ally in Donald Trump who represents a real threat to democracy. Now, Trump, not a big fan of people that disagree with him. I don't think he's the centerpiece of cancel culture right now. I want to read out another paragraph. The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vote for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a binding moral certainty. Now, there was a key word missing there. One word that was, intre- <laughs> one word that was definitely put in there was radical right. I just kind of feel the other group that are definitely doing cancel culture, they kind of got away with it there. Yeah. Well, the main group
0: that's doing cancel culture. Yeah,
1: exactly. So if you can't even call out the people that are actually canceling people, the people that are mustering the forces of a liberalism, if you can't actually put a name to them, I don't even know why you'd bother publishing the letter. You're just going like, oh, I just want good things. Like, call them out. Say, look, these are the people. Here are their names. These are the people cancelling everyone. These people, like, we need to fight back against this exact thing.
0: But we can just say,
1: oh, you know, it's the radical right, but now it's society. No, it isn't. It is a very particular part of society.
0: Yeah, oh, you're definitely right. It would have been a better letter had that happened. Uh, But I still sort of think it's a step in the right direction. And that thing about Donald Trump, like, there's going to be no one more triggered than you know, the the hard left when Donald Trump loses the election in November or um or in four more years when he when his term runs out where he goes, Okay, thanks for your time everyone. I'm out. It's like what? I thought you were gonna, you know, call the army in and defend your spot in the White House. Yeah. Um so yeah and and so we should mention of course there was a second letter in response to the first letter oh, from the speaking that of we're cringe, about. that
1: was the cringiest thing I've ever seen.
0: <laughs> so that was that was a much longer letter I would say. Yeah. Uh, and and that was just talking about how I mean look, it just presented, you know It was just like, I would say it presented a series of straw man arguments and highly contested views as absolute fact and then just said, you know, these people are white so they don't deserve to have a view. Can I read out
1: the one straw man argument, which every time I see it, because it's such a popular thought. And every time I see it, it just boils my blood. So this is from the uh, response open letter published in the objective. Under the guise of free speech and free exchange of ideas, the letter appears to be asking for unrestricted freedom to espouse their points of view free from consequence or criticism. Literally, no one thinks anyone should say something without consequence or criticism. Mm. Free speech is consequence and criticism for your words. It just doesn't come from the government. It comes from everyone else. So when everyone, like, no one's like, oh, I should be able to say whatever I want and no one ever should say anything against me. That's just pure narcissism. No one that believes in free speech actually actually wants that. They just want a free public debate of ideas. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't
0: and I don't even think that the government should step into this. I'm happy for it, you know. I think it's—I don't think it should be illegal for a company to sack someone because of some, you know, completely marginal tweet that no one's read. Uh, I just think it's a bad thing. So, uh, yeah. So that that would be one of those kind of straw men things that they put forward, and then they just run off for the next paragraph about. So, look, read the read the letters for yourself, I guess. Um, oh, and, and this second thing, it's like it's completely laughable to suggest that cancel culture isn't a thing like they they attacked the signatories of the letter saying these people are famous they have massive platforms how can they possibly talk about cancel culture but they're not talking about themselves they're talking about the no-name people who've been destroyed um by cancel culture like to to, to suggest that cancel culture isn't a thing is just a denial of reality as far as i'm yeah concerned. like the
1: idea that oh cancel culture isn't a thing because jk rowling is still a billionaire yeah, yeah because she's a billionaire but there are people that aren't billionaires that are cancelled if she was a truck driver, she would have got canceled. For sure. Um, all right, let's move on to the last one, which is Facebook are mulling a ban on election ads.
0: Yeah, good word, mulling.
1: Don't hear it enough. Uh, Facebook is reportedly,
0: is reportedly considering an ad. It's a pretty amazing story, actually, on political ads before the US election this year. So it's being discussed internally. It's not actually policy yet, James. Uh, the step would drastically... Es- escalate Facebook's current plans for presenting preventing misinformation and meddling in the 2020 elections. They are just so worried that it's gonna happen again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they just can't imagine that the, th- the only reason that this guy got in was because he was his big brain, you know, manipulation of people through social media. It wasn't it wasn't the fact that maybe some people liked him. I think it really oh, the, the this
1: he was up against Hillary Clinton. Yeah,
0: he was up against Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. Now he's up against Joe Biden. Uh, the 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 thing for them is which must Burn right. The big tech is like the the guy they hate so much. Only got within a thousand k's of the White House because of the very platforms they created. There's no way he wins. You know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, he just doesn't get near it. But the fact that there's Twitter and Facebook, these guys created the platform which made Trump possible. I think is where we get this stuff from. That I that I sort of half talked about <laughs>
1: before I go yeah. into my rant. Uh, yeah. So. I mean, you can find it funny, I find it pretty weird because now Facebook and Twitter are basically saying, we will decide what is misinformation, we will decide what are political ads, and I go, "Mm, I don't think you get to do that. I think I get to decide what's information and misinformation according to me, or uh, just, you know, let the public do it. But when these tech billionaires go, okay, this is information, this is misinformation, I mean, just look through recent tech history and just go, "Uh, you guys don't get to decide that anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, from, what it, from how it's been presented is as polit- all political ads, so it's not like misinformation or, or mailing, it's just any political ad, and it's for a few days prior to the election. Um, and some have said, you know, this is going to favour Trump, because Trump has a bigger presence on face a bigger organic presence on Facebook than Biden, 25 million followers compared to 2.1 million followers. Um, so that So he can still put stuff on his page, he just can't pay for ads
1: yeah Um, but do you reckon uh trump posting something on facebook will definitely not be seen as a election ad because it's that upcoming an election it's a public policy statement i mean that's what they're saying at the moment yeah just uh, i don't know this is pretty scary stuff for me
0: yeah well and 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 for for zuckerberg it is uh it is a change of heart because he was like you know i'm not going to police people's ads um, he said that, you know, the company wasn't an arbiter of truth. He believes in free speech. He's, he has said probably rightly that removing political ads removes or harms smaller candidates who are less well-funded and can't pay for as much actual advertising. Um, so, yeah, it's it's weird. And, and as we say, it's not actual policy yet. So it'll see what happened. Twitter has banned political ads. This gave me a chuckle, actually, because of the viral spread of misinformation presented challenges to civic discourse. So there you go. Twitter does care about civic Discourse, James. Uh, I'll update my been. records. Yep.
1: All if right. Let's could. move so on to. Let's move on to heroes and villains. This is a grunt. The pig, freedom snort. Uh, for people that have stood up for liberty and justice around the world, Pete. Who is your hero this week?
0: This one is an awesome one. Speaking of people that have really stood up for liberty, like really, really stood up for liberty, Lee Mengyan, scientist at the Hong Kong School of Public Health. Uh, according, she's a scientist, as I just just said. Uh, she. Uh, according to her, the Chinese Communist Party and Senior University staff suppressed evidence that coronavirus could be transmitted between humans in December. Uh, so on December 31, she she so she's in Hong Kong, so she didn't have, actually have access to the labs, but she got contact from the labs in China saying that it was transmitted between people. She told her boss, and her boss just ignored the information. On January 9, the World Health Organization released a statement supporting the Chinese claims that the virus doesn't transmit readily against people, so... Um, as a result of that, she fled Hong Kong and is hiding in the US so that she could tell people this is what happened. Uh, one study f- by Chinese and British experts found that had the lockdown begun at the start of the year, the number of cases could have been cut by 95%, which is pretty depressing to think about. So anyway, Li Meng Yan for risking your life and presumably your family's life to tell the truth. You're my hero this week.
1: Very good one. My one, uh, our colleagues, Gideon Rosner, Renee Gorman, and Zach Gorman. As we said, Friedman Conference was over the weekend. They, Gideon won the Young Libertarian of the Year. Renee and Zach won the Libertarian Power Couple of the Year. And now mm-hmm. they get to take home the triple threat, which is the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I know they're our colleagues and uh, this might, you know, they're our colleagues and I get it, but... They do a tireless amount of work for freedom. You think Gideon in the media, Zach's stuff about Western civilization and, of course, Renee's stuff with Generation Liberty. I mean, get involved if you are at university right now. We're still doing a whole bunch of really cool things even though that classes are not in session. So I just wanted to give our colleagues a big old shout-out. All right, oh, let's yeah. go over to Villains. Yep,
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, so the Extinction Rebellion Fake Nudie Run Award is the award for people that have not stood up for freedom. In fact, they've, they've uh, obstructed the, the path to freedom, let's say. Roll the tapes. All
2: As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day.
0: Okay, so that's obviously the Fake Nudie Run Extinction Rebellion held in October last year, which was a nudie run to save the world, but they weren't fully nude. James, who's your villain?
1: Uh, social life shamers are terrible oh, yeah. people. So okay. it's it's a, um, like it's like the next level of every time someone would post a photo from a beach and there was a bunch of people on the beach who, by the way, were all social distancing. If you look really closely, they're, di- they're away from everyone else, but they post up a photo and go, look at these people having fun. How bloody dare you? Ne- latest one was Scott Morrison went to the rugby over the weekend to watch the uh, Cronulla Sharks. As, the, as Melbourne remains in lockdown. Now, Granola Sharks are not playing in Melbourne, so I don't know why this is linked, but there was this <laughs> whole Twitter blue drip freak out uh, and social me- other social media websites as well are over how dare Scott Morrison kick back at the footy, how dare he do all this because we're still battling coronavirus. Like, one, it's safe to do so, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it, so he's not breaking social distancing by going. And then two... Like, Do they assume he just didn't take his phone or he had his phone off and he was completely away from the world and was missing key meetings because the Cronulla Sharks were playing? We're going to be doing this until we have a cure and it's going to suck every time because if someone's not breaking social distancing, they don't need public shaming.
0: Yeah, and, and so this is just one of those things where if people hate him, they hate this and if they love him, they love this. I think it sort of gives people a bit of, for me anyway, like I'm not a ma- I'm not like some massive fan of Scott Morrison, but it's like, it's just good to see the fact that he is sort of out and about living his life sort of projects a little bit of this thing that maybe things in some way, in some small way, getting a little bit back to normal and that's a positive thing. So I kind of liked it. And yeah, it's not like Shark Stadium or whatever it's called. I mean, Cronulla is right down the south of Sydney, but it's not like, you know, he's got a phone, okay? If something <laughs> happens, he's got a phone.
1: Yeah. All right, uh, your villain, Pete.
0: Okay, this one's from Rita Panahi. So just nicking it from her. Formula One staged a BLM protest. I prefer to say BLM. Black Lives Matters is really difficult for me to say. Like there's too many plurals. Like, Do you lives not agree with that? Is that the problem?
1: What's that? Sorry? <laughs> Do not, is that, that why it's difficult for you to say?
0: I agree with the statement. I don't agree with the group. Um, anyway, so I'm going to say BLM from now on. BLM protest... Uh, So, yeah, Formula One did a BLM protest. Now, this group is anti-capitalist and very much pro-Marxist. Now, last time I checked, Formula One loved money, so that's an interesting take from them. As Rita pointed out, if you're really anti-racist F1, you wouldn't hold a race in China, where if you want to talk about racists, the Chinese CCP are incredibly racist. Over a million Uyghurs are in concentration camps, effectively for their faith, Uh, not to mention the political dissidents in jail and often killed for their views uh we see this happen time and time again and you might argue like f one might be like you know we think it's actually better to have the race because you know that means we're exposing chinese people to the outside world and maybe that's a good thing and i can accept that argument if that was the argument being made uh if you were going to do that maybe you'd have a protest at the start of the chinese grand prix maybe you'd have you know a solidarity with uyghurs who are in concentration camps protest at the start of the, the chinese grand prix anyway we see this time and time again sport getting involved with politics, and they're saying, you know, we really care about these political issues, really care about racism, uh, but then they f- it just sort of works out that they care about money a little bit more. And when it comes to time to stand up to China,
1: they just don't quite manage it. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked. Tell you what, I am absolutely shocked. Couldn't believe my own eyes when I saw it. Anyway, oh, uh, very good um, villain. Look. Let us go to our interview with James Bass. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show one of the very good friends of the Young IPA podcast, Senator James Patterson, Liberal Senator for Victoria. Uh, Welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, James and Pete. I was watching the Friedman Conference on the weekend and I saw that Mike Munger has appeared on Russ Roberts' Econ Talk Time uh, program 37 times. So until you've had me on 37 times on the Young IPA podcast, we've got more work to do.
1: All right, sounds good to me. You're always bringing big ratings, so 37 more of these, sign me up. All right, but uh, I want to talk about it because last week was a huge... Uh, pretty monumentous week in the history of like Australia's relations with Hong Kong and just Hong Kong in general. And we want to talk to you, I mean, one of the founding members of the Wolverines about it. So the government's made the decision to offer uh, up to 10,000 students and skilled workers already in Australia an extended five years on visas. And we've also ended extradition to Hong Kong after the national security laws from China. So why is this so important?
2: Well, for a couple of reasons, James. Most obviously because Hong Kong has changed and sadly, I fear, it has changed forever. Um, we should never lose hope and maybe things will turn around for the better in the future. But where we stand today and what it looks like today, uh, Hong Kong has been fundamentally and irreparably changed by the passage of the national security law in Beijing. It's an incredibly Orwellian piece of legislation. Uh, it is. It has a whole lot of ill-defined terms. Effectively, what we know is that although we could worry about this word or that word in the um, legislation at the end of the day because the judges are going to be handpicked in a political process and because ultimately their answer to Beijing, the law will mean whatever Beijing wants it to mean at whatever time they want it to mean. And if you're a freedom fighter in Hong Kong, that is a terrifying prospect. Uh, Essentially, Hong Kong has been totally subsumed now into the um, mainland Chinese Communist Party justice system, and for the people who've been fighting for the freedoms of Hong Kong, that means. Uh, It's a very, very dark day indeed. So Australia's done a couple of things in response. Crucially, we've immediately suspended our extradition treaty with Hong Kong because, uh, for very good reason, we don't have an extradition treaty with mainland China. Uh, and if we maintained an extradition treaty with Hong Kong now that it's effectively part of the mainland justice system, well, then we'd be effectively having an extradition treaty with China in a back doorway. So we've ended that. Um, secondly, we've allowed all the Hong Kongers who are here today to safely stay because many of them won't want to return for good reason. And thirdly, we've opened up pathways for the super talented potential migrants from Hong Kong to come to Australia. I mean, there's actually the good humanitarian reasons to be doing this, but frankly, there's also just self-interested economic reasons to be doing this as well. It'd be hard to find a better class of potential migrants anywhere in the world than the people of Hong Kong. And I think we'd be lucky to have as many of them as possible.
0: James, you and a few of your colleagues, played a played a special role in getting the ball rolling on ending extradition treaties to China and Hong Kong. Do you want to run through, I know you've spoken about that before on the program, but do you want to run through that for our listeners who might not be aware of that? Yeah, there's a little
2: bit of history to this, Pete. Uh, back in 2017, uh, the then Turnbull government under Foreign Minister Julie Bishop sought to ratify a long-dormant, Uh, negotiated but never ratified extradition treaty with the Peoples Republic of China. Uh, It was negotiated originally under John Howard, but his government never sought to ratify it, nor did the governments of Kevin Rudd, Julie Gillard or Tony Abbott, but under uh, this new government of uh, Prime Minister Turnbull and Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, they sought to ratify it. Now, um, some of us um, Tim Wilson, Andrew Hastie, Jonathan Dunny, and myself and and a handful of others were instinctively uncomfortable with this simply because the Chinese Communist Party legal system has a 99.9% conviction rate. It It is not a free or a fair or a just or open legal system in any sense of the word. And we knew that even if no Australian citizen or any other citizen within our jurisdiction was ever extradited to face that unfair justice system, simply the threat of having to face that would be a very intimidating thing particularly for the chinese diaspora in australia uh the chinese communist party has entire departments one of them is called the united front work department which are dedicated to the task of corralling and controlling and and terrifying the chinese diaspora around the world to supporting the political objectives of the ccp and backing up beijing on political issues and this would give them another powerful tool we know they already threaten the families back home in mainland china of overseas chinese and say if you don't do the right thing there'll be consequences for them well if we had to pass this extradition treaty they would have also been able to say you don't do what we ask we're going to extradite you uh, back to China and you'll face our legal system and all the terror that that entails for people. So, we were instinctively uncomfortable for those reasons. We we're quite surprised that our government was seeking to ratify this agreement. Um, I was the first backbencher to say that um, if it came to a vote in the Senate, it looked likely that it would, because Corey Bernani was going to move a, um, a motion effectively to nullify it. I said I would cross the floor and vote against the government's position, which is um, not something you do every day. Um, this is not particularly well received by the government at the time. and myself and Tim and Andrew and others came under a lot of pressure to change our views but we held firm and eventually the government decided to withdraw the treaty rather than seek to ratify it and looking back it's amazing that whatever was considered uh, when it was and I can't ever contemplate an Australian government uh, proposing one again but we came very close to having one uh, and if it wasn't for those of us who threatened to cross the floor it might have
1: yeah, I think the last week's worth of decisions with Hong Kong is the kind of stuff that uh, not only gives me an amazing amount of uh, pride in Australia and also like uh, gratitude towards yourself and your colleagues, but I think it's also one of those things that's going to pop up in history books like 80 years from now. Just like look at the governments around the world that were there for the Hong Kong as when they needed them most which is really good. Now, uh, you brought up one thing which I want to talk about, which is uh, the Hong Kong is coming to Australia and I mean, the humanitarian good is there but also the economic good. So I want to pitch a policy to you and i just want to see what your thoughts are so i reckon we take a like a low population dense part of like northern territory or northern western australia and build a special economic zone and we just recreate everything that was good about (laughs) hong kong yes and they can do whatever they want you know it's their it's their territory we got free trade we got free movement it's going to be beautiful it's exactly what they had except instead of china it's the liberal democratic government of australia
2: I tell you what, it's it's very appealing, James, because we know that if you have entrepreneurial creative people and the right institutional settings, the right policy settings, it's amazing what they can achieve, um, even in far flung places in, in, in the desert and in the inhospitable uh, north. In fact, this has been a semi-serious proposal floated in the United Kingdom as well, that they should found a new coastal city somewhere in uh, England that would uh, facilitate uh, potentially millions of Hong Kongers that they've opened their doors to, uh, to recreate what's wonderful about Hong Kong in the UK. Um, Of course, you can't ever exactly create Hong Kong. Again, it's it's special because of where it is, because of the people, because of the um, institutions. But the institutions fundamentally are the most important part and a special economic zone would recreate um, those conditions. And it's really about uh, the rule of law, uh, open trade, Uh, low taxes, limited regulation, and uh, massive opportunities for entrepreneurship. And I mean, really, that's something that all Australians should have access to. It shouldn't be quarantined to any special economic zone. It's something that we should all strive for. But uh, the great thing about special economic zones is they highlight the merits of these ideas. They show in a kind of a a natural experiment in a test tube. Look at what happens when you give people these conditions. And uh, if they can have them, why shouldn't everyone else?
1: Sorry, Pete. If I can just jump in, uh, I, this is a lesson for me in negotiating because I, like the soft pitch for me was the Hong Kong gets a special economic zone, but the hard pitch was all of Australia is a special economic <laughs> zone. And I could have got you with the hard pitch, is what I'm hearing. So yeah, yeah you, Lesson you, for just, me: always, always ask for too much. You never know what you're going to get.
2: Always start with your ambit claim, James, and settle for something less.
1: Uh, well, this is a big lesson. Sorry, Pete. <laughs> this is it's good to see James developing
0: and growing. So, um. So what was I going to say? Yeah, so it's only been 22 years or so since after Hong Kong was returned to China and we've already seen uh, the situation turn into what it's turned into. From your perspective, how does that happen, James? Do you Is there anyone you in particular blame for that Were the British naive to think that this wouldn't happen? Uh, was there any way to ever prevent this from happening or was this always going to happen? Do you have a view on any of that? Yeah.
2: So, so in, in 1997, uh, the British handed back Hong Kong to the Chinese Communist Party and accepted it would become part of China again, uh, but did so under a specific set of conditions and under what we all hoped and what was thought at the time to be a robust agreement to protect uh, what was special about Hong Kong. It's, all, it's called the Sino-British Declaration. Uh, it actually has legal force. It's a treaty registered with the United Nations. And it sets out a whole range of things that must be uh, guaranteed for the people of Hong Kong and actually some things that must be granted to the people of Hong Kong that they didn't have at that time, uh, including universal suffrage. It was supposed to be uh, universal suffrage and uh, free voting. They were supposed to be able to... Uh, elect their chief executive, which is effectively the same as a a state premier um, in the Australian political system. Now, not only were those promises uh, of things to be granted to the people of Hong Kong never kept, but the commitment of the bare minimum standards that were supposed to be kept have also been walked away from and watered down over time. And there have been some signs uh, that it was heading in this direction for for some years now. It's not like it's happened overnight, but uh, the rapid descent in just the last 18 months to two years, I think has shocked a lot of observers. Uh, most people probably thought at the tail end of that 50-year handover, which you know still has uh, 27 years to go, you would see a watering down of these things, not only 23 years into that handover, as we're seeing now, and it's essentially been completely extinguished with the passage of the national security law. Um, the the sign of British Declaration actually says there should be a national security law for Hong Kong, but it must be passed by the Hong Kong legislature and it must be the choice of the hong kong people uh, how it's designed well that was blatantly and flagrantly breached when it was passed by the national people's congress in beijing and imposed uh, on hong kong it's there's no way of arguing around that that is just the most transparent breach of that agreement possible but the chinese Communist party doesn't feel bound by it uh they feel that hong kong Uh, is entirely a matter for them and uh, not an interest for the rest of the world. And it is a lesson for the world that the Chinese Communist Party uh, can't be relied upon to abide by agreements that it itself voluntarily signs up to.
1: In a world so sensitive to colonialism, I mean, all the statues that are coming down around the world because they represent colonialist ideals, this is actual colonialism. This is a country uh, muscling in on another territory and just... uh, building the society they want, despite what the native population want. Uh, I'm not saying that no one's talking about this, because obviously the Wolverines are talking about this and all these governments are opening up, uh, uh, but why doesn't it get the same level of uh, international attention as statues of people that died 200 years ago? Well,
2: one of the things that the defenders of the Chinese Communist Party in the Western world often say about it is, sure, we don't like their domestic policy settings, we don't like uh, their human rights record internally, but it's ju- it's it's not an expansionist power. It's a power which only seeks to consolidate its own position in the world. It doesn't seek to expand its borders or export its ideology or control the rest of the world. Well, tell that to the people of Hong Kong. Um, Tell that to the people of Taiwan who fear that they're next. Um, Tell that to the people of Tibet who've been through this. Um, Tell that to uh, the Indian government, which is having a very serious border dispute with China at the moment. Uh, And have a look at what's happened in the South China Sea. Um, It it, it may not be an expansionist power in the sense that it's uh, invading far flung nations, but. Uh, on its own perimeter and around its own borders, it absolutely is expanding its sphere of influence uh, militarily, politically, diplomatically. And uh, and it does have expansionist aims for its ideology. It wants to uh, make sure it applies to uh, the free people of Taiwan, 24 million people, a nylon nation that has had a successful liberal democracy for a number of years now. Uh, China wants to uh, bring that in back into the mainland and take away that uh, political system and force it under the, the China's Communist Party's undemocratic system. So it, that is, in my view, expansion of uh, ideology and that is an expansionist uh, power and, and the free world must stand up against that and must resist that and we can't allow what's happened to Hong Kong to happen to Taiwan.
0: So speaking of China trying to exert its influence elsewhere, there's been a fresh ban to put, a fresh push to ban TikTok or as I like to call it, tic uh, because of the data it provides to the CCP, difficult issue for uh, classical liberals. Would you see it? Ba- would you see it banned, or, or would you not see it banned?
2: Yeah, my, my instinct on this, Pete, is uh, I don't want Australia in any way to resemble China. Uh, China has a great firewall, and I don't want to see Australia have a great firewall. But having said that, uh, apps like TikTok, um, WeChat, and others. Are dangerous apps they seem very harmless and a lot of young Australians in particular download them and think they're just a bit of fun but uh, what they don't know in many cases is how invasive these apps are for your privacy now Everyone's aware generally that social media has some privacy risks and everyone's critical of Facebook and Twitter and Google for the amount of data that collect. That pales in comparison to the way that these apps operate, in particular TikTok. It harvests a whole lot of data from your phone that is completely unnecessary in the delivery of its service. It does not just harvest data within the app, but on your phone generally and other things that happen on your phone. And I don't believe it's, secure, it's stored securely and I don't believe it's necessary to be collected. Um, It's an app which censors criticism of the Chinese Communist Party. There's a famous instance of a A pro-Uyghur video being posted and then censored and taken down uh it's an app that is a platform for chinese communist party propaganda um overseas uh young australians should be very aware of the dangers of these kind of apps in particular frankly i think they need to come with some kind of health warning or consumer warning so people at least know exactly what they're getting into when they download it but having said that other countries are heading towards banning it india has banned it united states is considering banning it a couple other countries are reviewing it as well so uh I, i wouldn't rule that out as a possibility
1: how does that stack up with freedom of association though? Because I, I know like the threat might be uh, uh, downplayed in people's minds, they, but people are aware that TikTok is basically a Chinese buying thing, but shouldn't you still have the right to download an app on your phone? If you go, you know what? Uh, I just, I like bad dancing videos that much that I'm willing to part with my personal information like that.
2: Yeah. And that's why I say James, I'm reluctant to have an Australian firewall in the way that we have a, a Chinese firewall, uh, but, but I actually don't think most people are aware, I think most people are very naive about it, have no idea about the ownership of TikTok or the politics of its parent company back in China or the closeness of it to the Chinese Communist Party uh, or, or the politicised nature of it. I think, I think actually most young Australians are completely naive about that. They think it's just another app on the App Store and uh, if Apple has approved it to be on the App Store, well, it can't be any worse than any other app on the App Store. And in fact, it is much, much worse.
0: So, James, the Wolverines have had some pretty big policy wins in the last little bit. What's next? What's not next on the agenda for the Wolverines?
2: Yeah, I think that's a um, fair observation, Pete. Uh, that Australian politics and our approach to China's Communist Party has changed dramatically in the last few years. When we first started out speaking out about these issues, we've, we've moved in a big, big way. Uh, I have just no criticism at all of the Prime Minister or the Foreign Minister and how they're handling these issues. They have—they um, fill me with pride every time I see them stand up and speak out about these issues. Um, they bring both strong moral dimension to this, reflecting Australia's values, but also very assertive about Australia's national interests and our sovereignty. Um, so we're very happy uh, with how that's going. Um, it will require eternal vigilance, though, because uh, I don't think the threats of economic coercion and the pressure on Australia is going to go away. And crucially, it requires working with like-minded countries that are having similar experiences to Australia. Um, Canada, in many respects, is having an even tougher time uh, with the Chinese Communist Party than Australia is. They have two citizens who are detained in a completely arbitrary way uh, in retaliation for the arrest of a Huawei executive uh, in Canada. The Chinese Foreign Ministry has openly said that there is a link between the arrests of the Canadians and the um the Huawei executive, uh, and uh, that's just one of many issues that Canada's having. But essentially every country that has diplomatic relations with China, whether it's uh, Norway or Sweden or the United Kingdom or Germany or Vietnam or the Philippines or Malaysia or anyone, they're all having a version of Australia's experience. And so it's crucial that we work together and that we back each other up and that we form our own united front and liberal democratic united front with like-minded countries, particularly in the region, South Korea, Japan, others, uh, and demonstrate that collectively, we're not going to allow ourselves to be pushed around, that collectively we're going to stand up for ourselves. And that's our best chance of uh, changing the trajectory that China has been on and getting China to uh, accept that it has a big place and an important place to play in the world, but not one that allows it to dictate to the rest of the world.
1: Let's uh, switch lanes for a second. So over the last week, Victoria's come back into stage three lockdowns. What were your reactions to that?
2: Uh, Like most Victorians... Frustration, anger, concern, uh, annoyance. Uh, I'm particularly worried on behalf of the small business community who have been absolutely smashed by this announcement. Think about every small cafe that had designed new menus, scheduled staff, ordered in um, supplies, ready to kind of take that cautious, you know, step, bold, brave step to opening up again. And uh, the rug has completely been pulled out from underneath them. Uh, many of the businesses that survived the first lockdown will not survive the second lockdown. Uh, we know that there will be more business failure from this, and that's people's lives and livelihoods utterly destroyed. It's their dreams destroyed. So I'm incredibly disheartened about that, and uh, I'm incredibly worried about the impact on uh, the economy and people's mental health and our, our social bonds um, from this. I'm worried that people won't comply in the same way they did the first time because, frankly, they're over it. Uh, so, this this is a very serious issue. Uh, it is a very serious failure of the Victorian Government. Uh, the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, said the other day that uh, the uh, sequencing tests that they've been doing on the virus that is now out in the community again shows that there is no virus left from the February-March stages of the outbreak. What that means is that Victoria effectively achieved elimination uh, in the community, the same as the other states appear to have, uh, until there was leakage from hotel quarantine. And now we have the hotel quarantine version of the virus out in the community. Uh, that is a very, very serious public policy failure, given the enormous cost that is going to have on people. Gee, I, I, I hadn't
0: come across that. That's um, that's. Amazing. Um, Would you see any changes? Would you have any changes to the lockdowns that has been introduced? Would you have a lesser one or a shorter one or any differences like that?
2: Well, the very clear evidence from the COVID-19 committee, which I'm on from uh, almost all the witnesses that we've heard from in the medical space is that the most successful, the single most successful measures introduced in this crisis have been the border measures. Uh, and that had they been competently administered, uh, we could have opened our domestic economy up in Victoria as we have in the rest of the country. I mean, in, in some states, you know, South Australia and, and Western Australia in particular, essentially all of the restrictions that were put in place have now been lifted. There are a few remaining restrictions, but the biggest and most interventionist restrictions have been lifted. They are now gone. and. That means that their economies are opened up and running about as normally as they ever was, but we're going to have to retain those strong border measures for some time. Well, Victoria could have had that had we better administered our hotel quarantine. And essentially the domestic economy in Australia could be as back to as normal as it can be in this very unusual, strange world that we're now living in. Um, That's uh, something of great regret. Uh, and disappointment for me, and I I know particularly for the federal government, uh, we didn't want to see this backward step be taken. We didn't want to see Victoria effectively cut off from the rest of the country with hard borders being imposed between New South Wales and Victoria, where everybody said throughout this crisis, that's something we never wanted to do and never thought we would need to do. Uh, So I I think it shows that the very heavy costs imposed by lockdowns um, are disproportionate, uh, and that what we just need to do is ensure competent border protection measures uh, once this this new outbreak is under control.
1: James Patterson, Liberal Senator Victoria. We're one step closer to that uh, 37 or 337 or whatever it was uh, number. But thank you so much for your time.
2: Thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate
1: it. Okay, thank you too, Senator James Patterson. And now the return of one of my favorite segments we've ever done here, Pete's Not Fine. Pete, hit us with it. Yeah,
0: look, it's a shame that we have to bring this one back, James, but that's the nature of the world we live in. Pete's not fined. This is all the crazy fines that we've seen in regards to COVID-19. I'm going to hit you first with a lady fined for feeding her horse. Now, under the restrictions, residents are only only allowed to leave their homes for work, essential shopping, exercise or medical care. Karen Evans thought that medical care included horses uh and she was sadly mistaken she was pulled over for having just delivered feed to a 16 year old horse lily uh and she got fined 1652 dollars she said i said i've got no one else to feed my horse so he's just like well you do understand i have to find you i said this is ridiculous you can't find me if you are caregiving just because she's not a human being i was angry i was very angry so that's case number one. You cannot go and feed your
1: pets, apparently. That has been overturned, I will say. It's been has overturned, it? which is good. Yeah, police will not proceed with finding her. James, that
0: is why we keep you around. But the process is the punishment, James. The process is the punishment. All right. Yep, number two. The most, ex- the most expensive run for KFC ever. KFC in Melbourne has... Uh, so a run for KFC... So people were having a party, and uh, these two people went into KFC, and they... Piqued the interest of actually emergency workers, ambulance workers, I believe, because they had an order for like 20 meals of KFC. So these emergency workers told the police about their suspicions. Police then chased them or followed them to their townhouse in Dandenong uh, where they found a group of people who then tried to hide in the backyard, garage and under beds. Uh, And they all got fined. That led to a $26,000 fine for the group of partygoers. And, uh, yeah, the most expensive KFC meal in history. Now, the last one I want to do...
1: Oh, I just want to talk about this one because I'd like to see KFC treated as international waters. I don't think any rule of man or God holds up in a Dirty Bird restaurant. I think that's <laughs> a free zone.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's a little bit like, you know, they got dobbed in. And I think KFC is like, you know, it's like an embassy or something like that. Yeah, I think so. It's US. diplomatic
1: immunity. Hmm. But chicken. Sorry, I just started drinking just as we, as I was meant to talk. <laughs> a strange decision from you, for sure. <laughs> all, right. Well, all right, case number three.
0: Uh, case number three. Police in Queensland have slammed as selfish. People trying to dodge strict border rules and sneak into Queensland. Uh, a busload of Victorians was fined 24K because they said that they weren't from... Queen- on their border form, they said that they weren't from Queensland. They said they were from New South Wales. Now, the group of six got out of the minivan. We're from Victoria, don't you mean? That's right. Word from Victoria. Yep. Very good, James. They got out of their minivan and uh, just stopped, tried to make it across the border on foot but was stopped by police and police looked at their phones and worked out that they'd been in New South Wales. Uh, and they and they also looked at photos that the group had been in Victoria in the last 14 days. So, unlucky. Pete's not fine. Those are, The three editions of Pete not fine for this week.
1: Uh, I'll, I just... I mean, this is what Corona has done in that Victorians will go by foot. To Queensland just to get yeah. away from being in Victoria. It's, it's a long way away. Because when we go back uh, to normality and the whole interstate rivalries come back up, it's going to be tough to live the fact, live down the fact that Victorians were by foot going to Queensland just to get out yeah. of the state. Oh,
0: and you don't want to find out that that was happening to places like South Australia, you know? Yeah, Victoria's we'll never desperately- come back from this.
1: All right, uh, we'll move on to. Um, I think we used have a segment for this, but uh, just. Incredible Guardian headline came across our desk last week. I'm just going to read it out verbatim. Upward thrusting buildings ejaculating into the sky. Do cities have to be sexist?
0: It is not that kind of podcast, James. Can you clean it up? I
1: mean, it's that kind of paper. So upward thrusting buildings ejaculating into the sky. Do cities have to be so sexist? I don't know what buildings she's looking at, but it's this classic (laughs) Guardian. It's like feminist architecture and how to like feminize a city because all these tall buildings... uh, In fact, um, I'm going to read out... uh, part of it so glass ceilings and phallic towers mean streets and dark alleys sorry just mean streets and dark alleys road names and statues of men from the physical to the metaphorical the city is filled with reminders of masculine power it's a couple thousand words, and I think it's one of those articles where they gave her the word count before she figured out what she was going to say, because in an article about feminizing major cities, uh, Black Lives Matter came up somehow, and also the fact... I mean, I was reading the article, then I got distracted by Instagram, and when I came back to the article, the first sentence I have read was, even Frederick Engels thought women should stay in the home, and I thought, oh, this article has taken a turn. Like, I don't know, don't know why this one gets brought up in the context of things. Uh, so... I don't know. It's this classic Guardian debate, But uh, to be honest, I'm a bit disappointed because if you're going to write an article like this, so go ahead. I've read out the title twice. Go ahead and read it then come back to this. I'm a bit disappointed because in an article like this, I need a shopping list. I need a dot point list of all the buildings she thinks are too mm. masculine to stay up yeah. just so we can all ground ourselves. So there's a photo of one building in China in the article, which is pretty funny. I needed a shopping list.
0: Yeah. Well, it, I should point out this woman, Leslie Kern, has a new book called Feminist City. So she was trying to flog a book. So presumably there's a whole book full of this stuff, James, if you want to know more. Uh, I don't think... I'm not 100% convinced that skyscrapers were designed deliberately to resemble penises. Would you say... Yeah, I think it's
1: more packing the maximum amount of things into a confined space. I think it's natural that you would go up.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Uh, So... Look, I mean, I don't want to judge it before I read the book But yeah, to me that is
1: uh, that is a hot take
0: Yeah, can I that.
1: read out that first sentence again? Glass ceilings yeah. and phallic towers, mean streets and dark alleys Like as examples of masculine things Now she knows that the phrase glass ceilings came after the concept of ceilings made of glass, right? Yeah. It wasn't just like, we never thought of it before And then that phrase comes up and we go, hang on, that would be good in a building Yeah
0: yeah, no, that's right. I don't know if she had thought of that. But um, look, I'm going to have to read the book. Leslie Curd, Feminist City. Check all it right, out. I want a
1: book report on my desk by <laughs> next podcast and then <laughs> we can go through it. Uh, all right, Pete, our last story.
0: Adam Bant's, Adam Bant's allegedly fake note. Important to note that, allegedly fake note. So Adam Bant uh, was obviously uh, around the towers in Melbourne when they were very severely locked down, as tough lockdown as China. Uh, and he was helping out with the food and stuff like that. Good on on you for that. This note did emerge from that, though, which Adam Bant put on his Twitter. He said, Things are tough at the North Melbourne public housing flats this morning where residents got locked down last night with no notice and now can't leave. This was dropped out a window by one resident. Now, it's a note. They've managed to pick out Adam by dropping it out of a window, which I'm told are all bolted shut all the time. But anyway, it said, Hi, Adam. I can understand the lockdown, but but I don't understand... Not even
1: the windows being shut, but just like the natural path of wind. Did not take this note for a second off course. It was one hell of a drop. Like a sniper shot, just bang, right there, right on his feet.
0: That's right. And the note says, Hi, Adam. I can understand the lockdown, but I don't understand why there are cops all around our building. It's quite intimidating. Upside down, smiley face. As in frowny face, not upside down, smiley face. So... It's amazing that this note perfectly reflected all the Greens' talking points about the lockdown. Yeah, amazing with stuff. amazing
1: with, calligraphy, I've got to say. Like some of the best handwriting I've ever seen.
0: For, for someone who scrawled this quickly when they caught sight of the, the amazing Adam Bant from 20 Stories Up, yeah. the writing is outstanding. Outstanding handwriting. Great for grammar as well. For someone who never well. got their pen license. Great yep. grammar as well. And for someone who never got their pen license, I, you know, I admire it a lot. Uh, so James, I guess, and so this I should mention this this started a hashtag as they call it on Twitter of high Adam notes where people wrote him fake notes. There are a lot of good ones. Check it out if you want to. James, do you think this
1: is fake? Uh, look, evidence would suggest. I mean, if it comes out that this was real, everyone is going to look like the biggest classiest pig in the history of the <laughs> planet. But the evidence would push you to think that the idea of someone's clocking adam Ban, able to drop yeah. this note at his feet from 20 stories this incredible calligraphy from stuff just figured around the house uh better grammar than half the ipa staff uh it it, it does raise a few questions doesn't it and it really brings me back cause like this is a thing that's happened before in lockdown in the middle of the riots in America, Austin Police Department wanted to show how happy they were with the, how much the community actually loved them, and so they posted up a photo of all the officers looking through thank you notes. But every single thank you note had exactly the same handwriting. Really? <laughs> yeah. So this is not so a first. I don't first know how stop. that can go viral, and it doesn't clock anyone in Adamant's office to go. Let's let's think this through. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. How does, I
0: mean, does Adam, like, the people in those towers actually know who Adam Bant is? Like, I just find that really hard to believe that they'd go, oh, there's, you know, there's. The I wouldn't put it past to party. be walking
1: around the towers with a megaphone saying, I am Adam Bant. Please address letters to me and I'll make them go viral.
0: Yeah. So, there you go. Check it out. There's heaps of them on Facebook. There's a few in the Australian as well.
1: Great stuff. All right, just perfectly selected is- the talking points. That is it for the show this week. Thanks again to Senator James Patterson. Uh, if you like the show, make sure you're leaving us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And if, you know we're also on all these other podcast platforms as well. So tell your friends and family about the show. And we'll see you guys next week. See you guys.